morning, my friends. It's good to be with you. I'm discovering as I continue to walk with God throughout life that I'm learning more and more about the nature and the essence of love. That love by its nature seems to expand like there's no there's no limit or end to love. It's not like it has a ceiling or a cap. It's like you get in this elevator and you continue to go up and you're going up and you're going up and you never reach the top floor because there isn't a top floor. It just is, it's limitless. It just keeps going on and on and on. And as I thought about the nature of love, I thought about when I was a young dad and my kids were young and um, you know, you have these rituals with your kids where you tell your kids as you're putting them to bed at night how much you love them and then they respond back, oh, I love you more. And then you say, oh, that's not possible. It, how could that be possible? I love you more. And then it's just this back and forth and then it ends with hugs and or it ends with, well, I love you to infinity. And then I would say, well, I love you to infinity and back and then back to infinity. And it just gets into this like rotation of like, we can't, we can't outdo it. We just can't. Love, love continues to grow and grow and grow. It's the nature of love. And I'm discovering that as I'm walking with God, as I'm walking and learning how to walk in the way of Jesus, that my love for people just continues to grow and evolve and expand. It's like my first impulse is to see people through the lens of love and, and not through the lens of skepticism or judgment or um, seeing people as just something that's in the way. It just it First and foremost, it begins with love, not to say that those other things aren't there, but love just seems to be the first impulse as I walk with God. And I think this has deep implications for how we view the places that we live. And you think about the city in which you live. So we happen to live in Benicia. And if I think of myself as somebody who's walking with God, as I walk through my city and I'm walking with God, how does that change the lens in which I see my city through? How how I see the people that I interact with or, or how I pray for local business or uh, city officials and city leaders and schools that I walk by. And I find that as I walk with God and walk through my city, things start to line up and I find myself wanting to bless people and wanting to um, see them encouraged and experience the goodness of God. And I went back in our story a bit and I thought about, we, you know, we had planted a church through the Evangelical Covenant Church back in 2001, and we called it the Rock Covenant Church. And we began as a small group of people who began to develop a dream and a passion for the city of Manhattan Beach that God had placed us in. And before we started planning services and, and started talking about what kind of music we wanted or how we wanted to preach or what kind of uh, people would be involved in the services, we just started praying for our city, and that's where we began. And we would gather every Tuesday night and we would walk together. We walked through the city of Manhattan Beach and the goal was to walk through every street, every business, every restaurant, every school, every city building. We just walked by everything and we prayed over our entire city and just asked for God to bless the whole place. And that changed us. It gave us a deeper heart for our city and so that we began to see our city differently. And it was amazing how our heart lined up with God's heart for the city in which he had placed and called us. And then I went back a, a bit further in my story and I remember my dad telling me a story so long ago. And he was telling me a story about 
one of his friends who happened to be a priest in the city of Royal Oak, Michigan, where my father happened to be a minister as well, and they developed a really close relationship. But I remember him telling me a story about Father Proust, Father Ed Proust, and people would come to Father Ed Proust and they would ask questions like they asked many of us who are in the work of, of the church, how many people are in your parish or how many people attend your services? And he would always answer 35,000. And 35,000 people are the amount of people that actually lived in the city of Royal Oak. And that's how he viewed his role. He was a priest to the, to the entire city of Royal Oak. And, and then I saw how that shaped and affected my father, who he viewed himself not only as the pastor of the Woodlawn Church of God, but as the pastor to the city of Royal Oak. And he, he modeled that and he, he proved that by his actions. He befriended city officials and schools and prayed at, at local businesses. It, it was the heart of the city was embedded in his heart. And lo and behold, that somehow has trickled on down and has affected the sun. And um, this has shaped and formed how I see myself as a, as a Jesus follower, but also as a pastor. Because as a pastor, one of my greatest joys is that I get to love people. That's what I get to do. I just get to love people. And what a great job to love people. So today, what I want to do is I want to springboard off of some of that, just some of that passion of um, building on our vision of being light in the world and building on what we explored last week about uh, we are a city of light and we had explored the idea of being a holy ethnic based out of 1 Peter 2.9 and that that holy ethnic is like we're becoming a new culture within, within a culture. We're, we're like a Jesus-shaped culture. And I want to look at an Old Testament story this morning out of Genesis chapter 18. And it's centered around this interaction between God and this man named Abraham. And the story gives us um, some insight into the nature of God, what God is like. But it also, I want to look at what Abraham is doing here because it's some really strange things happening in the story. But some beautiful insights, I think, for us to further develop what it means to be light in the world. So I'm hoping that you already read the story, Genesis 18, verses 16 through 33. It's a rather large chunk of time. So I want you to pause here if you haven't read it, put it on pause, read the story, take it in, sit with it, and then we'll get back to it in a moment. So hit pause. I'll smile. There it goes. All right, we bring it back. So we read the story. We're in couple of observations just about the story. This is what some would call maybe one of the first recorded prayers that we have in the Bible. Now, that may be true. Although I think that Abraham is doing more than praying here, I think he is also priesting on behalf of the city of Sodom. Yes, you heard it right. He's priesting. Earlier in the story, Abraham is visited by three strangers. One of the strangers happens to be the Lord, the other two are angels, and he's visited by them, and he expresses hospitality to them. He's like, come on in, let's eat together, which is just a strange story, right? If the Lord and two angels show up, you're like, I don't know, what do we do? Let's eat together. And then in verse 16, it tells us that Abraham is walking along with the Lord and these two figures, and the Lord is taking him down to the city of Sodom to see what's going on in the city. Now, notice that Abraham is walking with God. That's key to the story. And the reason why they're going down to see if, uh, if there's problems in the city is because the city of Sodom had become so corrupt and so vile that there was an outcry against them. 
So this outcry, this injustice had reached the Lord somehow in the story. And, this, and, and God says, I'm going to go down and, and confirm and see if what I'm hearing is actually happening. Now, the word outcry here in verse 20 is actually the Hebrew word used throughout the scriptures to indicate the cries of the oppressed. So there's, there's something key going on there. And from what we know about the character of God throughout the biblical narrative is that he cannot resist the cries of the oppressed. When he hears the cries of the oppressed and they reach his ear, he acts, he responds, he moves towards that oppression. So the Lord tells us, the story tells us that the Lord is, I'm going to go down and see what's going on for myself. I'm going to see if this is really happening. So not only is God now moving towards humanity, moving towards oppression, it seems like he's also inviting Abraham to intervene on behalf of Sodom. This is really strange. And in verse 17, we hear the Lord beginning to talk. And he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Or do I bring him in on the plan? And it seems like he's bringing Abraham in on the plan that he's about to execute judgment on the city of Sodom. And then in verse 22, he sends the other two characters away. And now he and Abraham are totally alone. And so it's like the stage is set. And what's so striking to me throughout the story is that even though God is about to bring judgment down on the city of Sodom, he invites Abraham to step in and intervene. And that's the key here. The stage is set. Abraham comes in. He's invited in by God to intervene on behalf of a whole city. Now, why does God have to come down in order to confirm what's actually going on? That, that's a strange thing happening in the story. Is that the point of the story or is there more going on? And I think there's more going on here. Why is God walking? That's another big question. What, what is that about? And why does God invite Abraham to intervene with him? So I, I like those two questions of why is God walking and why is Abraham walking with God? And why does God invite Abraham to walk with him? And then the amazing thing happens here in verse 25. It says that Abraham now approaches the Lord. Now the word approached is a staggering word here. It's like, oh my gosh, he just approached the Lord. Now if you read it on the surface, not only is he walking with God, not only is he standing before the Lord, now he's approaching God. Now some scholars believe that this is a legal term being used here. It would be like approaching the bench to come uh, to come with a case before the judge. You're, you're, you're approaching the, the authority. So it would appear that Abraham is invited to be a legal representative on behalf of a whole city. So Abraham, we could say Abraham is taking on a priestly duty. And we're, we're doing our best to keep it in the biblical narrative here. So notice in verse 24, Abraham asks God if he will not spare the place. Hmm. Notice something here. Abraham's primary concern is not just for his own family or even his own people. Abraham is pleading for the city of Sodom, and the city of Sodom is full of Canaanites. And this makes this particular story really unique 
Because when you see other people priesting on behalf of an entire community, people like Moses or Jeremiah, uh, Samuel, Amos, you see them priesting for their people, other believers in Yahweh. But Abraham isn't priesting for his own people. He's not priesting for people who believe like he does or like his people believed. He priests for people who are not like him. And he asks God, the judge, the question, would you spare the whole place? It appears like Abraham is acting as a defense attorney for a city. Now check out the boldness in verse 25. This is, this is amazing. And the boldness and the confidence in which he comes and approaches the bench is just staggering. And he and he asks the living God a question, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? You're like, wait a minute. Did you just say that out loud? Did you? And did you just say that to God after you approached him? I mean, the fact that you approached him and then let alone just come close to him and now you're asking him these kinds of questions? He approaches God. You are a just God. You are a law-giving God. You demand justice. You demand righteousness because you are holy. However, will you not spare? Now, the, the Hebrew word for spare being used here is the word forgive. So in other words, what he's saying is, will you not forgive the place, which means the whole place, like the whole city. Now, let's take it deeper into the story here because, because of what is going on, Asking these questions of God, will you not forgive the many for the sake of a righteous few? And I think that's like the deeper question going on here that we need to explore. In other words, could you, God, in my exploration, could you value the righteousness of just a remnant of people that would somehow cover the unrighteousness of the many? Oh, <laughs> And this is the question that's embedded in the bartering that we see between God and Abraham. You know, it takes me back to a familiar story in, in the biblical narrative. In Judges chapter 7, you have Gideon's army, and Gideon's army goes in, and they defeat the Midianites. And God comes to the Israelite community, and he says, before you go in and do battle, I want to make it clear to you that after you go in and defeat the Midianites, don't take anything for yourselves. Don't take anything. Nothing is to be touched or taken for your own benefit, for yourselves or your family. In other words, I don't want you to be like every other culture out there who goes in and plunders and takes, and then they take their wealth and make it their own. I don't want you to do that. And so in Judges 7, this one character in the army named Achan, he goes in and he takes a pile of money for himself, for his family, just a little bit, and he sets it aside and he, he hides it and he takes it for his own benefit. And then God comes to Israel and says, Israel has sinned against me. And you're going, wait a minute. Israel has sinned against you? Based on one person's actions, you're judging the whole community. And so they seek it out. They discover that Achan's done this. They go to Achan. He's found to be guilty. They take Achan and his whole family and they're executed. Now, you, you think in it, we Westerners have such a hard time with a story like this because we start with the question, well, how, how could all of us be held accountable for the disobedience of somebody who decided to go rogue? How, how does that work? Because in our society, it's all about individual responsibility, right? 
that my actions, those are my actions, my individual rights, my individual responsibilities, that that's up to you. How you act is up to you, but I'm keeping myself in check. And there's, and there's order in that, and there's a rightness in that. And yet Israel is held accountable for the actions of one person. There's like the sense of a corporate responsibility weaved within the culture and the understanding. And, and we see a lot of that in the scriptures. However, what's amazing to me here is that I think what Abraham could possibly be doing is he could be exploring the concept of could this work in reverse? Like if the sins of others could somehow make all of us guilty, what about the righteousness of others? Abraham is exploring in his bartering, is my record my only hope as an individual? Or do you, God, the lover of righteousness, the one who loves righteousness knows so much that, that somehow the righteousness of others could be credited to someone like me, or do I have to stand on my own? So Abraham is bartering with God. He starts with 50. If there are 50 righteous in the city, will you spare the whole place? And God says, yes, if there are 50. And then he's like, okay, let's take this deeper. How about 45? Don't you love it? Go down by fives and then he gets down to 40, 35, 30. Let's jump to 20. And then there's some fear and trembling that's starting to happen. And, and he's realizing what he's stepping on here. And, he's, and he goes to 10 and the Lord says, yes, if there are 10, I will spare the whole place. So in that exploration, it really raises the question, is there a faithful remnant within the city and is that faithful remnant priesting on behalf of the whole? Are they interceding? Do they see themselves as, as part of the bigger story here? Those walking with God, acting against injustice. Is there a remnant of people within the city who when they hear the cries of the oppressed, they move into action and they act on behalf of it because this is what they see God doing? And a question that rises up for me in this story is, will the faithful remnant cry out for the sake of the city? That's a, that's a big question. For the sake of the whole, even for our enemies, even for Canaanites. You know, the, the New Testament writers talk about Jesus as our high priest, and our high priest doesn't just know about our case. He actually executes the case and he stands in as our representative. Jesus is described in the New Testament as the one who stands in our defense. So when accusations are brought against us, Jesus is our perfect defense attorney. And he always says, Father, forgive them based on what I have done. I've st I'm standing in their place as their representative. And I'm crying out to you, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you see these parallels in Abraham and in Jesus. Like Abraham prays for the people who could have hurt him. I mean, he had to keep the Canaanites off of himself, out of his house with swords. And yet here he is pleading for these very people, pleading for their safety, for their well-being before the living God. You see Jesus up on the cross and as people are killing him, he's praying for them. Father, forgive them, right? It's like he's, he's standing in. He's priesting. Abraham is, is risking his life for the sake of the whole place. He's approached God. I mean, who does that and lives to tell about it? You don't approach God with this kind of boldness and, 
and confidence. But here's Abraham approaching God, exploring the nature of God. Will you not spare the whole place? And then we see Jesus giving his life for the whole cosmos, right? For all of humanity. And in Hebrews chapter 7, we're told that Jesus is our high priest and that he perfectly meets our needs unlike any other priest who offered sacrifices. He offers himself once for all, the ultimate sacrifice for all the sins of the world. Once for all, satisfied. It's completely done. That's the act of one righteous person saving the whole. You see how it works. And according to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, our, our high priest has made a way for us to come to God as a righteous people. We are declared holy. And this high priest always lives to intercede for us. Like this high priest is always interceding, praying, blessing, loving, always priesting for the whole and not just for a few. What does that mean? Our high priest is always standing before God the Father, priesting for us. You think about the role of a priest, the, the priest is the representative of the people. The priest is, is both rooted in God and rooted in the people. It's like he's, he's acting in both places. And when people need things from God, they go to the priest and the priest works on behalf of the broken or the downtrodden or the lonely. And what's so astonishing about this is that the New Testament begins to play on this. And in like, in like the book of Revelation chapter 1 verse 6, it says that he has made us kings and priests unto God. I mean, you're like, what? He's made us kings and priests? And if you go back to last week's sermon in 1 Peter 2, 9, not only have we been declared a people who are set apart, we've, we've been declared a holy ethnic, like we're a whole new culture, a Jesus-shaped culture. But Peter reminds us, you are a royal priesthood. That means that we now have access to God which was once just for the elites. Now, every single Jesus follower has access to God and we can come to God with boldness and confidence. Now, I wanna go back to something earlier in the story. Abraham is priesting on behalf of the whole place, not just for his family or people who are like him. He's priesting for Canaanites. Now, I want you to think for a moment how easy it is to see ourselves as above others especially people who are different than us, who, are, who believe differently than we do. We, we see ourselves as above them, more enlightened. Have you noticed that when we give in and we begin to see ourselves as superior to anyone, how it can subtly begin to destroy your gentleness? And when that happens, it can also begin to destroy your priestliness and we start to say things like, get rid of them, get them out of here, eliminate those people. And we put all these labels on people and we start defining who they are. Just keep them away from us. Can, I, can we go back to Matthew 5 where we started last week, where Jesus makes a declarative statement about who we already are? You are the light of the world. Not you are just light to your faith community and or you're just light to the people who are like you, who, who think like you, who vote like you, who believe like you, you're the light of the world. What if we take this even further as we play with this idea? What if we begin to see ourselves as a city full of priests and not just as light and not just as a holy ethnic, but a city of priests? Imagine with me a whole city priesting for the whole place. 
a whole city walking with God, priesting for the sake of the whole. I think that when we forget or we take our eyes off of the priest who is always priesting for us, and we forget about what that means, we begin to lose the plot, our vision, our mission. Our world gets smaller. It becomes more about us and our community and our safety and our security. And the question is then, when we think about the implications of this, is always, how then shall we respond? Can we be a, a city full of people who are priesting? Can, can that be our posture, our our inner narrative that we're always priesting. You imagine with me Hillside Covenant Church, a city of light within a city. And because of our high priest Jesus, we now have complete access to infinite joy. We have complete access to the God of the universe. We get to approach the bench with confidence and security because we serve a high priest who invites us to priest for our neighbors, who invites us to respond to the cries of the oppressed. Imagine what a city of priests could do. My invitation for you in the response is that as you walk with God this week, begin by walking through your neighborhood, priesting, praying for our neighbors. How can I love my neighbor? How can I priest for my city? How can I priest for local business owners and city officials and leaders and authorities? I wonder how things might change if we acted like a city of priests. I leave you again with the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its, its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Grace and peace be with you, my fellow priests.